You're listening to the podcast When Life Gives You Lemons, presented by me, Emma Levy. Having worked with elite athletes for most of my career, it's always intrigued me that a significant number of high-performing individuals have encountered some form of adversity earlier in their lifetime. My fascination into this grew when I had my own brush with adversity, when I was diagnosed with breast cancer in May 2020, in the midst of the global pandemic, at the age of only 36. During this period, I questioned whether it was my positive mindset, or maybe something deeper, which enabled me to bounce back and to train and compete for a triathlon just one month following completion of all active cancer treatments. The goal of this podcast is to explore this concept further by meeting a variety of high-performing individuals who have experienced adversity, but who have come back stronger. Today, I'm welcoming Alice Olins to the podcast. Alice wears many hats. She has been described as an entrepreneur, coach, media expert, journalist, author, public speaker, and a mother of three. After the publication of her first book, she founded The Step Up Club, which helps women to thrive in their careers. In this episode, we will be discussing the loss of Alice's firstborn son, who was stillborn at 40 weeks. It is a tragedy which is every parent's worst nightmare, and I will be asking Alice how that experience continues to influence her life and the person she is today. Alice, thank you for joining us today. First off, I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you, Emma. As a writer, I know you've written a few articles about your son, Bear, and what you went through. Are you happy to share that story with us? Yeah, of course. Yeah, And definitely reading and hearing your podcast and kind of the premise of it is definitely something that I have thought about personally myself. And it's definitely something that resonates with me. And it's really nice that you have kind of packaged it into something that other people can learn from and maybe use to be able to explore themselves because we all I mean we're going to talk about the loss of bear and that's a very extreme adversity but we all go through adversities in our lives and I am I'm such a believer in us being able to harness that and I'm actually a lot of my work is helping women particularly to leverage difficult times and actually open themselves up to difficult times and kind of we learn and we grow when things are challenging we don't we don't kind of you know it's very hard to develop in the status quo so it's something that has kind of in many forms it informs a lot of what I do and it's very present for me always great what doesn't kill us makes us stronger hey sure that is one of my favorite quotes yeah um so obviously it was a devastating loss um you were 40 weeks yeah it was on your due date on my due date on his due date yeah Wow. And did you know anything you prepared? No, I had no idea. I mean, I I kind of half joke about it now that at the time I was a journalist at the Times. Mm -hmm. I worked on Times 2. We worked across all sorts of, I mean, I particularly worked in kind of women and style, but I worked with teams who kind of medical staff, news, you know, I was constant. I love the news. I'm I'm a real kind of, I I constantly kind of reading the news and, and learning I didn't even know that you could lose your child just before their due date. And I feel, and I'm, you know, I consider myself quite educated yeah. um, and widely read, like I said, and I just didn't know that that could happen. And, and truthfully, that happened in 2010. There has been a lot in the media. There's an incredible baby loss community now. Yeah. I'm a trustee for a really uh, a charity called Teddy's Wish that's very close to my heart. And I, I have a kind of community in that space. I, I don't 
get massively involved now, to be honest. Um, It's something maybe a bit more private. But at the time when we lost Bear, there was just nothing. I Mm. mean, you know, people didn't really talk about it. And actually, after Bear died, I remember, um, what's her name? Amanda Holden. She Mm -hmm. lost a baby. Um, Lily Allen lost a baby. It was quite early on, I think. Maybe it was Lily Allen. I might have got that wrong. But it was like there were a couple of kind of well-known women mm-hmm. who were suddenly talking about it and actually there was nothing when, yeah. when bear died or before so i was just tripping around london as a 29 year old you know just thinking mm. well i'm about to have my first baby and i'd already finished work for maternity leave oh and everything goodness. was just you know yeah. thought everything was fine did did they know what happened did you ever get an answer or a reason uh, in 60% or I think more 60 or 70% of cases you have no reason and that we fell in sadly fell into that bracket mm-hmm. um, when we then got pregnant again with um, Pearl who's our oldest daughter uh, we went to an amazing consultant who actually looked at all of our notes and he actually did a lot more research and kind of exploring and it's not the definitive answer but there was a, a, pl- a placental problem so right. the placenta in some way mm-hmm. essentially gave up and that yeah. does happen and some babies are still born are born mm-hmm. um healthy and fine with a compromised placenta but for some reason i mean he was seven pounds seven ounces it wow. was like a you know big chunky baby it was nothing wrong with him but yeah. um something yeah we were, were you angry at the world at the hospital oh yeah i was i mean i was in shock i was mm. angry at the delivery of the news because we went in i hadn't felt him move for that day I was at home and it was the first day of my maternity leave where I kind of felt tired you know before Mm. that I'd been completely fine I I mean I just felt tired it wasn't like a big deal or anything um and then I was thinking I haven't really felt the baby move that much and then my husband came home from work and we were meant to be going out for dinner and I said oh I haven't you know I'm not sure and I thought I mean I didn't even think anything was wrong I just thought maybe like I was about to give birth you know I was just so naive and we were going to go out for dinner and my husband Toby said well let's go to the hospital on the way and just get checked out and I said no no let's go out for dinner and then go to the hospital and he was like no let's go to the hospital um and we've since discussed that car journey and both neither of us discussed it but both of us thought oh we're on our way to have our baby like that this is what you know obviously something's happening and we've got you know because they you know there's terrible literature out there around babies movements decline before birth I mean Mm. it's all just not true um but again, we knew nothing. Uh, and we went and we went to the birthing centre and they couldn't find a heartbeat. And it's so funny because I am or was maybe not as much now such a worrier of people. So I don't really worry about things and I worry less about everything, strangely now. But I used to be one of those people that if like my parents weren't home at a certain time, I suddenly think they were like under a bus or like <laughs> I go to worst place scenario. I always yeah. go. To, I still kind of do go to worst place scenario. The strangest thing in that moment, they couldn't find a heartbeat down the birth centre and they said, we're just going to take you upstairs and get like a ultrasound. Mm. I wasn't even worried. Really? I don't, I, don't, I kind of thought, all right, well, the machine's probably, bro-. I mean, it was just, yeah. it was, I don't know if I was already in shock or yeah. I don't know what was happening. Or but avoidant of it, maybe, maybe you maybe didn't, I didn't want to think about I the realisation I just, I genuinely did not, I still didn't, I mean, it was just, anyway. And they obviously delivered the news, you know, that they basically said, that's the baby's heart and it's not beating. And they didn't, and again, like I couldn't compute what they were actually saying. At that point, I couldn't compute because it was so kind of removed from, mm. anyway, then we were sent home and then, 
you kind of give them medication and then you go back and I said the first thing I said was I want a cesarean and they're like we don't encourage that we really encourage you to deliver your babies naturally or to deliver stillborn babies naturally so I did deliver him naturally which I am really pleased I did yeah um was I angry yeah I was I turned into a horrible beastly woman Mm. I mean I was angry with everyone I hated everyone I mean I didn't hate everyone because some people were amazing but ostensibly I hated anyone who was pregnant anyone who had a baby and everyone in my life was suddenly pregnant and having babies and you know it was everywhere um so difficult and I was angry but I was I wasn't that wasn't my kind of dominant emotion my dominant emotion was just total despair and destruction Mm. and I was just empty. I mean, I was just, yeah, I was yeah. completely broken. I mean, it is, it's unfathomable. Um, and I read that one in 250 uh, births ends in stillborn. Yeah. Um, and those stats aren't getting any better. Well, I was going to ask, is research being done into that? Are they trying to improve those stats? Yes. And Teddy's Wish and um, Tommy's are two charities that are working hard to try and fund. There's a lot of research going on in Manchester. Mm. Uh, We are so far behind in the UK, even other European countries. Um, I don't know why. I I don't know why. I mean, I... I don't necessarily think, you know, you have so few appointments and so Mm. few scans. You have two scans. By 20 weeks, you're done. I mean, how anything can get picked up. So the stats aren't really getting better, but they are doing research. And so is it money? Is it lack of resources? It probably is, yeah. Yeah, and it that's that's is. hard. Yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It is hard. How do you think that trauma changed you as a woman? I think it made me grow up massively. Um, I, it's kind of hard to to encapsulate into one answer because I mm. think it's phased in a strange way. So I think to start with, it changed me because I became someone who just didn't do anything I used to do. Um, left my job, left, didn't go out. I would only see a few people. Um, and then obviously, then I actually got another opportunity to work and do a maternity leave ironically uh, of someone I knew at a magazine I knew and I, I did it. I really didn't want to do it but it was really good to do and I was really pleased I did that and that was and I actually fell pregnant right at the beginning of that uh, with Pearl um, and then I think it made me like I was so nervous I, I don't think I slept for nine months when I was pregnant with her um, but when she was born I was genuinely the happiest person in the whole world yeah. Um Someone had sent me a quote, I think it was Chloe, my friend Chloe actually, uh, who had sent me this quote about your heart and when you have a loss, that your heart kind of, I'm not going to be able to kind of do it justice, but something to do with the space in your heart, that a hole, a much great, there was a hole in your heart Mm -hmm. and then it's more capacity to hold love afterwards. And it was so true. I mean, I, I... I was the most, I mean, I'm probably not the most doting mother now because I've got three crazy <laughs> children, but I am. Obviously, I love my children. Um, but for Pearl, it was just this pure yeah. love, adoration, and it was just amazing. I I genuinely was just in this bubble of joy constantly. And I remember going to this parenting something, this parenting club thing, and they, you had to rate yourself. It was so weird. As a parent, <laughs> I gave myself 10 out of 10 on every front. And, I, and then I gave in and I thought, I'm not even going to explain that. And they probably think I'm completely <laughs> mad. But um, I did feel like that. Like I was just an amazing mum because I was so engaged. I was so happy and pleased. Yeah. So 
short term it just made me really engaged in being a mother um longer term it's allowed me to be much more open I've always been a really open person I've got lots of amazing friends I'm very close to my family I'm a real talker and communicator that's my thing Mm -hmm. um and it's I think it's brought greater depth to that it's allowed me to step into places when other people are having a very hard time and I don't have to say I know how you're feeling because I don't necessarily know how someone else is feeling because every situation is different but I think I have an empathy I don't have a fear around other people going through trauma I mean it's not something that I want to be involved in obviously I don't want people who I love to be suffering but I I've I'm not scared of that um and so I think I've maybe been able to be a good support for other people and then through my work my work is about understanding women and helping them to see themselves and helping them to develop in all sorts of amazing ways and I think that losing bear still informs my work because Mm -hmm. again I'm able to I think as a journalist my my skills were kind of disseminating information and being able to reproduce it and essentially when you're supporting people you're Mm -hmm. you're taking that information from them and then you're almost playing it back to them in a different way so my those skills I think maybe not from bear losing bear but the depth of it my ability to connect connect to people help women who are struggling feel safe is definitely I think helps me in the work that I do yeah I can definitely empathize with with that um lack of fear of other people's trauma yeah having been through trauma it's it's really interesting my Mm. shift on that as well when you've been through a trauma you can really empathize much more with other people going through that and I'd never really thought about the fact that maybe that's also made me more of a supportive friend so thank thank you I think they I think that person who's struggling also knows that you have been through something and again it doesn't need to be something that's discussed or spoken but perhaps your point of view or your you being in their space is easier for them too because there's some type of understanding there that if you haven't um and it's harder to take advice from someone when maybe they haven't ex- experienced that kind of depth of difficulty or despair or you know yeah, definitely um do you talk to your three children about bear yeah yeah for sure he's i mean our littlest is three he's a boy mm-hmm. um and he, so we have quite a lot of photos of Bear around. Um, and the girls totally, I mean, they're 11 and 9, and they, you know, they talk about him. And uh, sometimes, in, you know, it's funny, we haven't, uh, he hasn't been mentioned, we don't talk about him maybe as much at the moment, only because we've got a crazy three year old toddler <laughs> who seems to like suck the life out of all of us. Um, I, I know how that feels. Yeah, uh, in a wonderful way. Um, <laughs> It was interesting, actually, when we fell pregnant with Monty, our son. So we had to, I I felt very, I was really worried about having another boy Mm -hmm. after losing Bear. And um, my grandmother, who I was very close to, who I think maybe I'm quite similar to, had four boys. So I was always, felt I was going to be a mother of boys. um, Maybe wanted to be a mother of girls to some degree um but uh and had bear and then thought I'm probably just gonna have lots and lots of boys now and it's gonna be really hard and then when we found out that Pearlie was a girl you know I was <laughs> relieved I have to say because really? it was different yeah and it felt too close 
you know, because actually after Bear died, I used to walk around Gap Kids and just look at all the boys' clothes and wasn't mm. interested in the girls' clothes, you know. So it, I knew that, obviously, if it was another boy, it would all be fine. But I think for ease and, and simplicity, it just felt easier to have a girl. Yeah. Um, and then we had another girl. Um, and then I, I got pregnant again. And funny enough, Monty's due date was actually on Bear's due date. Oh, my goodness. Um, and he was a boy and I just I kind of just knew that was all going to happen it was really strange um but anyway he was born three weeks early as they all were um because I'm kind of high-risk pregnancy etc so he wasn't born on Bear's anniversary uh, in the end but um we always do something on his birthday we take the girls out um yeah he's he's still part of our family for sure and it's funny because in situations like this and you, and this is no, um, you know, it's totally fine. You know, you mm. introduced me as someone who's having three children. But mm. I do have four children, but really? I never say I have four children. Yeah. So I don't expect other people to say it. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, I do sometimes, there are situations where I, f- oh, it was National Sons Day this week and everyone mm. was posting about their sons. And I kind of thought I'm not even going to go there because I don't always have to go there. You know, I don't have to. But, you know, there are times where at the beginning it was, I just, you know, when we had, we didn't have Pearly and we had nothing and we mm. had, we were this kind of couple that were just, I don't know, we were parents without having a baby. And all I wanted to do was tell people about him constantly yeah. because I felt like he's a part of us. Why should we not be viewed in that way? And that does subside. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I, I don't feel guilt around it, but sometimes I feel that I have to remember to talk about him yeah. and I like other people talking about him Absolutely. as well yeah nice. why do you think that when people ask you how many children you have you don't say four even though you feel like you are a parent of four it's to save them probably mm. to a certain degree to save myself in those moments where sometimes I have you know that it's interesting sometimes I'll meet like a I don't know I've met a mum at nursery recently who I didn't know and I end up telling her quite quickly um, and other people will know me for a long time and won't know. So I suppose it's situation, it's just where my head is at. And mm. it's not that I feel that I'm going to necessarily break down about something, but yeah. it depends how much is going on, I suppose, and yeah. how, how maybe how I feel connected to them or whether I feel like it's, I don't know. I just, well, It's yeah. interesting because baby Do loss. Do you tell people when everyone about your cancer? Um, no. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, and I think as well it's it's to save them. Yeah. Which is interesting because you don't want to put them in that what you know they're going to be awkward. What do I say? Exactly. How do I react? Exactly. So I think And the loss of a child them. is so and the to lose a you know to have a stillborn baby is so unfathomable for yeah. so many people that it's just too much for people to even get their head around. And then yeah. what you're standing on the street and suddenly you know I wouldn't expect them to be able to understand or say anything right. So it is probably to save them and then often probably just save me too because I'm you know yeah of course. Yeah. But I do still find that baby loss is I don't know if it's the right word but quite a taboo subject. Mm-hmm. You know and it's not so comparable. But I had a, a missed miscarriage after twelve weeks in between our kids and at the time it was obviously a very difficult scenario but we didn't tell anyone you know we didn't tell our bestest friends I think we told some family members um and having you know that's now a number of years away and having spoken to friends about it in recent years I know so many people that went through the same Mm. thing and they also didn't tell anyone so why why do we not talk about it I don't know I mean I think maybe, I think there's a sense that everything should be easy and perfect maybe when we're producing children and it is private, I suppose, because I think as a woman, 
it's also so connected to your body. So I had a real, you know, and the amazing, I mean, we we heard some statistics. We went to counselling after we lost Bear mm. and it was, it was really good. But we, I think she told us or someone told us that, you know, most couples actually end up splitting up after the loss of a child because they're, it's so difficult and it, they're on such different planes. And Toby and I were really on the same page, thank God. Yeah. But there is such an extra element for the mother because physically your body still thinks you've had a well, your body has just had a baby yeah. and, you know, your body changes and just everything. And I, so I think maybe as a woman... It's self-preservation to not mm. talk about those things. But you're right. I mean, we we actually had a miscarriage between Bear and Pearly, which mm. was horrific yeah. because it was just like how many bad things can happen. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, and when you just asked me something, and I, as I was going through the timeline, and I thought I won't bother mentioning that because that's <laughs> kind of another thing to add. But now yeah, that yeah. you said it, you know, but so maybe to some degree, again, it's saving. And I, I just think it, the 12-week thing is a misnomer for me. It's just mm. pointless. You know, yeah. you're either you're either pregnant or you're not. And you're yeah. right. Like if you tell people at six weeks and you lose it, it normalizes yeah. for other people. And it is yes. so normal. Um so yeah, I think we told everyone really early when we got pregnant and we did harmony did tests you? really early and we were like, having a girl and we're only six <laughs> weeks pregnant, you know, that type of tell everyone. Joy. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. Um, in this podcast, I do like to talk to our guests about gr their grit and their resilience mm -hmm. and how you've been able to overcome your adversity. And I actually saw an article that you wrote on resilience. Mm -hmm. Love that um, subject. Yeah. I'm going to read a oh sentence okay. that, that I enjoyed where you said, it isn't the art of developing resilience that the women I work with find tricky. It's often the basic concept of identifying as a resilient person that stops them moving forward. And I found that really interesting. And I wondered if you identify as being a resilient person. I do identify as being a resilient person. I think I've always identified as being a resilient person. I, I'm a get up and go doer. Um, it's just who I am. Um, I'm, I'm more resilient, but I'm also older. So, yeah. you know, it isn't only bear that has influenced my life. Um, I've had career changes, I've had friend changes, I've had house changes, you know. Yeah. And so I, I'm someone who's always pushing for more and I'm not scared to step out of my comfort zone to kind of rock the boat a bit. Mm. And so I think those two very much go hand in hand. I I, I think I will... I will um, I'll float. I won't always, you know, I might sink in the short term and something might not go right. But I think ultimately I can make it go right. And, yeah. and I think that's just part of who I am. And I've developed resilience. And obviously I understand the concept of resilience and it's kind of ingredients. And I have mm -hmm. all of those in abundance, you know, having a supportive network. I have an incredibly supportive network. Being able to be self-aware as a person. I know I'm self-aware of being truthful and honest I I'm someone who can't help but be honest that's really important you need to be able to communicate to yourself and to others how you're feeling and actually part of resilience is being able to and I always encourage women to do this it isn't about batting away what's happened if it's something's gone awry actually part of being resilient is being able to feel those emotions for a, a, a portion of time so if something you know if something fails that you wanted to do sit with that mm. don't don't 
feel you immediately have to move on and be happy and ready to start again. But I think inherently within resilience is an ability to go, I'm going to sit in this and then I'm going to make a choice to move forward or learn and be able Mm -hmm. to kind of look back. And it's, I don't wallow you know, yeah. I don't wallow in things. I, I definitely feel stuff. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think I am somebody who is resilient. Yeah. So where do you sit on the nature nurture side of things? I mean, I'm 100% my dad. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone says they're my, their mum. I'm so different from my mum. It's quite <laughs> astonishing. Um, nature nurture. Like, Do you think you're born? Both, do you think everyone is born with a degree of resilience? And then I think babies are incredibly resilient. Yeah. They don't know they are. But you know, I mean, look at those tiny one pound babies that get born or not one pound, one kilo babies that get born. I mean, yeah, babies, yeah. You, I think humans are resilient. Mm. I think we erode our own resilience through our overthinking, through experience, through other people's view of us, yeah. of um how we're brought up you know I think it's almost the other way around I think we are as a race as a species sorry Mm. um we are resilient because we keep going despite it all yeah Um, I I think it's so interesting you look at babies you know how they keep trying to do something they keep trying to stand up they fall over they just try again they fall over they try again they fall over and then I think at some point like you're saying some some people lose that resilience and I'm interested as to what causes that loss of resilience and then I really believe that people are able to grow their resilience based on their experiences yeah I I'm think a so big too. believer of that but I don't want to think that everyone has to go through a traumatic experience no. just to make them resilient so what tips would you give someone who wanted to work on their resilience so much of our resilience rides in what's going on inside our heads the voice in our head um, how loud we allow our inner critic to get that natural voice that is there within all of us and accepting that it's there again it's what makes us human um, I feel f- for women predominantly and this is a generalization that we succumb to the voice too often and that um it's interesting because when we're talking about an openness about miscarriage I think there's a there's not enough openness around us all having a negative voice inside our heads and normalizing that because I think if we did we would be able to get a handle on her more easily and I think a lot of women allow thoughts and (coughs) beliefs to become fact and there's a real difference between the thoughts we have and the truth that exists and we conflate those often and I think that is so erosive when it comes to resilience we believe we can't do something we feel that we're not good enough you know sometimes we're told we're not good enough or Mm. you know especially as women we're working up against so many other obstacles and that doesn't help so um but it's not so easy to put that into practice is it what managing your inner voice I think it actually is easier than yeah I think it is I I think it takes consistency Mm -hmm. and I think it takes um discipline but I don't think the art of it is hard I think the tricky bit is being consistent with it so it is recognizing repeated negative thoughts that you have and saying that is Almost, that's a classic Alice thought. I, you know, yeah. that's okay. I'm going to have that thought, and I'm either going to recognise it and let it go, or I'm going to try and to replace it with something 
evidence-based that is truthful so if it's that I don't think I'm very good at running let's mm-hmm. say and every time I feel that I'm in a race I'm, I'm you know I'm really bad at this and then you kind of look back and go actually there were times or oh, I'm really good at skiing or I'm actually really good at sport well I can transfer those skills or if I'm good there then I'm probably not that bad there and it's kind of it's being able to be objective about what's going on in your mind you can't stop it but you can manage it better and I don't think it's hard but I think it takes like I said consistency and discipline and an openness to challenge yourself and I think a lot of women at the first instant just think I just don't have the energy or I just don't have the time or I just don't you know I'm too busy or and actually there's such value in just being able to carve out some time to think and reflect and get more of a handle on be a bit more strategic about yourself I think Mm. is what I'm saying and not just allow things to happen yeah it's interesting you talk about the inner critic because one of my previous guests and the adventurer Vicky Anstey she was talking about the inner critic and she one of the methods she teaches is to um I don't know if you've heard of this she, she built a clay model of her inner critic okay have you heard have you heard of this before? well I've heard of renaming her as someone yeah. different if that's kind of where you're getting to I think that's yeah. basically what she was saying so she built this clay model of this inner critic and it was ugly and horrible yeah. and then that inner critic would sit with her and she could look at it and say no you know yeah that's that's it's that separation right. that's kind of what I'm talking about and saying it's not me it's my thoughts and my thoughts aren't who I am they're part of how I process the world and how I experience the world but they they're not necessarily fact and I think we take them often as fact because and they you know I mean I had there's a ridiculous statistic about the number of negative thoughts we have a day Mm. tens and tens and tens of thousands of them but the interesting kind of sub stat within that is that 80% of those we had the same thought the day before and that we had the same thought the day before that and it's just those not just but it's that repetition of negative thoughts that's hard to break but if we can recognize them that's the first step in being able to get a handle on what's going on inside our head and 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 being separate from them Mm. working in sport I've always come across the chimp theory Oh, go on, what's that? Have you not heard about that? The ch- like the chimp sitting on oh, your yeah, shoulder. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so it's very similar to the inner yeah. critic. But my struggle with that, that I've always, and I, I read there's a book about it. I can't remember the author now. I probably should. called The Chimp Paradox. Yeah. Um, brilliant book because it really explains it very clearly, this theory. But I've always struggled with, and what you say is also rational. But when that chimp is telling you something in your ear, you can't rationalise with it. Or how do you rationalise with it? You know, that's my question. Like, yeah, I can try and do that and say, oh, you know, you're being silly in a critic or chimp. But it's not always so easy. No, it's not. It's not easy in the moment. And... Again, it's almost about recognising patterns. So it's it's I often get my clients to draw like a flow diagram of their response to a difficult situation so that they can go I'm in that phase and we might even color code it so we might start it being red Mm -hmm. and you have a very red response and your inner critic's going wild and you're feeling physically some you know physiologically it's becoming you know it's coming out and like sweating hands and whatever you're Mm -hmm. feeling hot going and then what's the next phase you know you calm down a bit maybe it's still quite orange and you've got another narrative that plays up at this point that's like I'm just not strong enough to go back to my manager and and kind of you know I don't know challenge what he said or she said and then 
as we move through, you always ultimately get back to green because you do come out of that flow diagram. In fact, the the flow diagram came from some parenting advice I once had from a, an amazing woman called Livy, who we were talking about. One of my children was a tantrumer. And uh, she was saying, you know, once a, a toddler starts tantruming, they've got to peak out. They will get to their peak. Um, so number one, just knowing they're going on this peak and kind of come down again is actually empowering as a parent. And also realising that the more questions you ask them while they're having their tantrum, like, what do you want for dinner? <laughs> You're just making that peak get higher and higher and higher. And so yeah. that really sat with me because it was like, we are always going to have an emotion, an arc of response to something difficult. So it's not stopping it at its instance. It's saying, like, Emma, I'm in my red phase. I'm mm-hmm. having that. Now is not the time for me to make a rational decision. I'm having everything is loud in my head. So I'm going to just allow that to be, and mm-hmm. I'm going to come back to it in an hour or a day or whatever my kind of pattern is. And so it's getting a handle in a more broad sense and recognising I know I'm having this very red response, but... I will go to orange and back to green again. And so almost being able to foresee what's coming is empowering to be able to manage those difficult situations. Yeah, thank you. That's very good advice. <laughs> um, which takes me to the next thing I wanted to talk about, which is a, which is the fact that you, you were a journalist for 10 years yep. and then you changed profession. We haven't really talked about that. Yep. Um, can you tell us what happened? Because I can imagine after being a journalist and a successful journalist, I believe, for a long time, it must take a lot of bravery to have pivoted and to gone down a different route. Uh, well, it took no bravery because I, I said I was going to leave the minute I lost Bear. So it was totally connected to that. Right. OK, so I didn't know that. That's interesting. Yeah, so okay. I was in the hospital room and I think the first thing I said was I'm never going back to work. Ever? Uh, no, no, All no. All types of work or journalism. Because I had been there so outwardly pregnant. Yeah. And I think it was that yeah. that was the... So it wasn't journalism. I, I, I will... I love journalism. It's the best training I could ever recommend for anyone Mm -hmm. um I loved every moment of my career and I still write and it's it's still very much part of who I am so it wasn't that I rejected um the profession I just couldn't go back to that job um despite it being my ultimate job um I couldn't go back there your dream job my dream job yeah, yeah for sure um so I decided not to do anything for a little while and then I did I do the freelance first? No, I think then I got this maternity cover. And, and was then, that a journalist yeah, job? So, that was, a, so you went back to journalism no, initially? Yeah, yeah, I went back as a fashion features director at Marie Claire and it was brilliant actually. Okay. And I, I was given a promotion on maternity leave and I launched a new magazine for them and it was great. And it was great for me because mm. it gave me something to focus on. Um, they really appreciated me. I realised I still had everything that I had before. Um, and it was fun and it was fast. It was only... 10 11 months and it was brilliant so I'm really thankful for that opportunity and it that really my, my husband literally pushed me out the door I mean pretty much not actually on the first day but he I said I don't think I can do this and he said yes you can and you have yeah. to do it and I really really want you to do it and I don't often listen to him uh but I did listen to him in that instance maybe because I thought he was speaking the truth um and it was scary I mean it was massively scary because I actually went in with uh, my friend who was pregnant at the time so on the first day I went in with her and she was like eight months pregnant it was just you know it was complex Uh, but I did it and it was hard and it was brilliant Um, so that's you know that's also part of my recovery I suppose if you're gonna um, but 
then I did a bit of freelance work and it didn't work for me. So my dad had always said to me in a slightly gendered way, journalism would be great for you because when you're when you've got kids, you can freelance and you can still work and you'll have your children at home. That doesn't work because for me it really didn't work because what I love about journalism is being with people, listening to stories, picking up stories and finding my angle and then getting it down. And when you're at home with a toddler, there ain't no stories <laughs> going on that anyone's going to be interested in you writing about particularly. So I did do a bit of parenting and I found it parenting journalism and I just found it so dull um <laughs> so I realized this was not going to be working for me um but equally because I was a 10 out of 10 mum um <laughs> I also wasn't going to go back to a full-time job I wasn't ready to yeah. kind of do that so um an opportunity came along to potentially write a book and it felt like the perfect opportunity because I could do it on my terms we had some help I, it meant I was out of the house working somewhere separate, but I wasn't out for hours and hours and hours yeah. on end. So it was a really good opportunity. So that bit didn't feel scary. It almost felt like an extension of of what I'd been doing, but in a way that felt interesting and new and empowering. But the um, subject of the book was... Uh, was women's career development. So yeah. that wasn't my, at the time, that wasn't my area of expertise. Yeah. But I did it with a <clears throat> friend and I was the writer communicator and she was the kind of um researcher as it were right. so it was a so good was that her field yeah it was her field okay. so it was a good blend of skills mm. um and then everything after that happened organically and it was uh the scary bit was when my then business partner who I wrote the book with decided that she didn't want to be part of the business anymore and it came out of the blue and I had to make a decision about whether to take it on myself and I think I think the assumption was from her side that I wouldn't want to and we would just wrap it up mm. um but I just felt like it was the beginning I mean I had loads of stuff I wanted to do I really had felt like I'd found my niche and hadn't mm. even really got in my niche yet it's just like I had a sense that the niche was coming yeah. um and I was absolutely wasn't going to stop so it how was how many years down the line was that that was um it was two years after the book uh so probably about two and a half years in okay um but it felt very you know it was taking up a lot of my time at that point and we were mm. we were very intertwined in yeah. terms of our work and our lives and everything um so the I suppose the scary bit was taking it on. Find the day I think it was the day we kind of signed, sealed, and delivered was the day I found out I was pregnant with Monty. Oh, wow. So that was great timing. <laughs> um and just deciding I was gonna carry on and I was gonna change it up and do it in the way that I wanted to do it. And it felt incredibly freeing in a way. Yeah. And nothing, you know, I loved the partnership I'd been in and it was brilliant and I'm really thankful that it kind of brought me to where I am so mm. um but I also love working on my own I, I still work with people I'm you know I can't work solely on my own yeah. just that's not who I am but um it felt really freeing to suddenly have something of my own and be able to plan and um still am trying to work out how to make it work yeah. you know but like the direction to take it and things like that it's yeah. been yeah it's been exciting so do you love what you do yes I love what I do I, I don't love running the business. <laughs> I would love someone to come in and say, yeah. um, I will run the business bit for you and you do all the other stuff. Yeah. Um, but I'm still learning and I enjoy it. And I've got a brilliant business coach who helps me with the business side of things. So mm -hmm. I find it interesting to still be learning, but I'm not a natural kind of numbers person. So yeah. that's the bit I struggle with. But, you know, it's all part and parcel.
And are you goal driven? Have you got a goal of where you want to go? Yes, I am goal driven. Um, we're going to be the number one provider of women's professional development in the UK, both in corporates and kind of direct customer. Uh, we're not there yet, but we will get there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I am goal driven. It's funny. Um, when you were saying to me it was your dream job at the Times, which it really was, mm-hmm. I found a five year plan that I wrote when I was about, I was probably about 17. And in my, no, I must have been. I think it was when I was at uni. Anyway, my five-year plan was to end up working at the Times, and I did it within the five years. And I just found it really interesting. That's I didn't. I'm not saying that in a showy-offy way because yeah. I worked for free for long enough and paid my dues. It was more that I'd written a five-year plan when yeah. I was like 17 or 18. So obviously, I have this within me, and I yeah. kind of could see the value in it. It was just something I wrote, and then probably felt really embarrassed about and shoved in the back of a notebook. But yeah, I think there's such power in being yeah. able to identify your goals and talk about them and talk about where you want to go. I'm a big yeah. advocate of women being able to articulate where they're going and not just what they've done. Absolutely. I, but I'm also a big advocate of women having, not only women actually, individuals having the confidence to pivot in mm-hmm. their careers. So just because you've done something for, you know, I, I've been a physio for 15 years and the same as you, I, I reached my goal. I always wanted to work with elite athletes And, you know, I got that dream job working with elite athletes, which I still do and I still love. But that wasn't a reason for me not to start kind of diverting out a little bit for this podcast. And this isn't a job yet for me. It's still a passion project, passion project. However, I think having that confidence to do something different is is so important. Yeah, And all the stuff you're learning is going back into your other work as well, into Mm. other parts of your life. So it's funny on the way here, I was listening to some of your episodes. And I don't have regret in my life. I'm not that type of person. But if I did have regret, (laughs) because I am a human. So obviously, there's a bit in there. It's that I didn't pursue sport. Oh, really? Yeah, I love sport. I'm obsessed with sport. I was quite a good athlete I used mm. to run for the county and I, I should have done it more never so, too late you could be a master's athlete I'm not sure I could Emma <laughs> um but I, I I am obsessed with sport as a mirror for life and I'm such an advocate of my children especially my girls doing sport we do a lot of sport I think it's so important to learn about yourself to learn about team building, to learn. One of my daughters, my oldest daughter is a very solitary sportswoman. So she's a cross country runner and she's a climber. Mm-hmm. She does amazing. She's an amazing um, rock climber. Wow. And my our, our middle daughter is a total team sport girl. She's an amazing footballer um, and kind of other team sports. And I just, I've, we've always said, for girls in London, sport has to be key. Like it's such, my husband's quite sporty too. We love watching sport. We make them watch so much sport. They just get so bored. Um, But they know all the tennis players and they know, you know, the Olympics. We had two weeks of watching the Olympics back to back. And, you know, my my oldest daughter's also an amazing skateboarder and she's obsessed with, you know, um, Sky Sky Brown. Brown And it's amazing for them. It's just role models. And just the the perseverance, the resilience, everything Mm. we talk, I talk about in my work is shown in sport and it's yeah. enjoyable and I just yeah. love it so yeah I love I kind of you know one day <laughs> something <laughs> a, ma- a master's athlete <laughs> maybe I something. don't know what that is I'm going to ask you well, there's always uh, the London marathon around the corner I don't know no I, don't. I, I, I love running but I, my husband's running I don't think I could not anyone I'm not could. resilient enough uh, Emma. anyone can do it Alice <laughs> <laughs> that's what I always say when people say I could never do that I'm I think like, well, I could, could do it I just don't know that I want to do yes, it yes that's, that's the, the difference point, yeah um, I like to ask on this podcast as well, um, 
which books you have found mm-hmm. um, that have been helpful in you overcoming your adversity? Because I think Ooh. as well as a writer, I'm imagining you read a lot. I do read a lot. Um, and my listeners do really enjoy these book recommendations. So is there anything specific you could think about? Um, oh, God, you've put me on the spot Yeah, now. sorry, I no, should no, have prepared no. you on that one. Um, I mean, I've got two books that are a bit more kind of professional development, personal development yeah. books, which haven't really helped me through adversity, but I know they help a lot of people and I love them. Yeah. Actually, three. So one's called Chatter by Ethan Cross, mm-hmm. and it's um, exactly what I was talking about, about our internal chatter yeah. and helping us to um, recognise manage um, and harness it for Mm. to help us rather than to hinder us so that's a great book um another one which you must know is atomic habits by james clear yes um i find that a very simple book it's great the concept yeah the concept's good but the point about consistency he hammers home and habits you know it's there's an, an amazing graph in that book and it it plots over time how we build a new habit and how it takes on average about 12 weeks but the point Mm. is what's the interesting bit is you see no return on your investment for about nine and a half weeks and it's called this and he does this kind of arc called the valley of disappointment or the arc of disappointment or something and I thought that that was really empowering because you spend so long committing and you see no return and that's where we tend to give up on habits and then you suddenly get this exponential kind of return on your your consistency and that I think that's really important because habits are hard and it's hard to stick to things and you have this beginning kind of energy and excitement about it can be anything it can be starting something small or big or whatever it is but we have to push through the bits where it feels mm. like it's going nowhere to see the results and yeah. um, and also is it James Clear's book that starts all about the British cycling team yes I love that yeah. as well marginal Just gains marginal gains is mm. so good um so I love that book and then there's a book um by Tara Moa called Playing Big. Okay. Or is it Playing Bigger? I think it's Playing Big. And um, she talks about lots of things, around, it's specifically for women um, in the workplace, but she talks about what something that really stuck with me is she, she separates out fear into two camps. And she actually takes it back to an Old Testament passage around Mm. fear and names these two fears that are named in the old testament which i can't recall the two names of them Mm. um but she says that or it says and she then talks around um we feel we we feel fear sometimes the fear is very constricting so it stops us doing what we want to do And then another part or subset of fear is that exhilaration fear where you feel you're almost standing on the edge of something and you're being heightened by it. And she, it's just this amazing passage around, again, kind of getting a handle on fear. It isn't mm. just this one nebulous feeling. It can have lots of kind of elements within it and the way that she broke it down and that you could you can kind of teach yourself to move from the constricted fear to something that feels very open to allow you to mm. start a podcast or change careers and actually kind of recognize that as something that can drive you forward rather than hold you back so I love that passage and that's yeah, really good that's really interesting I would check yeah. that one out yeah. thank you um final question yeah I like to ask all our guests if you could go back in time to when things were at their lowest at their worst yeah what do you wish you could have told yourself 
Um, well, first and foremost, you will have three more children because that was the thing that you feel like you're not going to have. You're never going to have children. Everyone else is going to. Um, that you will laugh and smile again mm-hmm. and things will be happy and you won't feel like a kind of outsider in your old life but you'll feel very much part of your life again. Um yeah, probably just that, because that's the main, you know, all the other stuff, work and things, are they're not so important. Yeah. You know, the important bit is building our family, which we have done. There mm-hmm. will be no more children. <laughs> um, and them all being amazing and us being happy and being able to have what we wanted to build on that front. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Alice, if people want to know more about you, where can they find you? They can find me on Instagram at the Step Up Club. They can find me on LinkedIn uh, under Alice Olins. Mm-hmm. Thank you for pronouncing my name right. Most people don't. Um, and they can find me, they can sign up to our newsletter, which I'm sure you'll put in the show notes or something. Yes, I absolutely will. Alice, thank you. Thank you for coming on That's and talking pleasure. about what I can only imagine is a very difficult subject to talk yeah. about. Um and to find courage and direction out of that experience is truly remarkable. Oh, so thank you. Thank you very much for coming on today. My pleasure. Thank you, Emma. If you enjoyed that episode, please do rate, review and subscribe because it really does make a difference for the podcast. We're so excited that the first series of When Life Gives You Lemons is sponsored by Coe's Linen. Coes supply some of the UK's finest hotels with luxury linens, including bedding, towels and bathrobes. So if you want to feel like you're on holiday or a spa break every day, then I can highly recommend their products. I really love my personalised bathrobe. You know that feeling when you've had a long day at work or a really hard workout. That's when all I want is to have a hot bath, dry myself in my fluffy Coes towel and then relax on the sofa. And that is when you'll find me in my Coes bathrobe. Honestly, the most cosy item I've ever owned. All products can be personalised with custom monograms designed by leading interior designer Sophie Patterson. You can find them exclusively online at www.coeslinen.com. Listeners to When Life Gives You Lemons can save 10% with the discount code POD10. You can find a link in the show notes. Do 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 do